You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the Rand Corporation. I'm Deanna Lee. And I'm Evan Banks. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from Rand's latest research and commentary. It's August 28th. Back in May and June, as the spread of COVID-19 was accelerating across many parts of the country, Rand conducted a survey to learn about voters' views on the upcoming election. Were Americans concerned about health and safety? What about the integrity of the election? And were they worried that local election officials wouldn't be prepared? Most survey respondents said that they think voting will be safe and believe their votes will be counted, despite challenges presented by COVID-19. But not everyone is confident about November. About one-third said that they were unsure about safety, election integrity, or officials' preparedness. Voters' concerns varied by race, education, and political party. For example, Black and Hispanic respondents tended to be less likely than white and non-Hispanic respondents to expect their votes to be counted accurately. And those who identified as Republicans were more likely to express concerns about election integrity, while Democrats were more likely to be concerned about public safety. It's also worth noting that, overall, the survey revealed that few people who voted in 2016 plan not to vote in 2020. But the intention to vote does appear to be lower on average among those who have safety concerns. These insights underscore the need to communicate clearly with voters about both election safety and integrity. This could help ensure that voters are not deterred from casting their ballots in the fall because of concerns related to the pandemic. This survey is part of a suite of resources released this month on conducting elections during the COVID-19 crisis. You can find all the analyses at rand.org slash COVID-19 election. There has been a lot of discussion and debate in recent weeks about the U.S. Postal Service. Amid public consternation about proposed cuts that could affect mail delivery and interfere with mail-in voting, the Postmaster General announced that these rollbacks would be halted until after November. However, some of the cuts, such as the removal of postal boxes and mail sorting machines, have already been made. Meanwhile, there's a broader fight happening in Washington over funding for the Postal Service, a federal agency that does not receive tax dollars to cover its operating expenses. So, just how essential is the Postal Service? Even more than you might think, say Rand researchers. First, the agency delivers mail to every address in the country, often making last-mile deliveries that private couriers will not. This is particularly important in rural communities. The Postal Service also delivers mail in U.S. protectorates like Puerto Rico and Guam, and to overseas military personnel and diplomats. It also contributes to public safety by distributing medicine and critical information during emergencies. For example, in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria in 2017, Letter carriers in Puerto Rico provided information on vulnerable citizens who needed medical care to the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Our experts say that even though the Postal Service carries out all these essential functions that private companies do not, 
Many people still mistakenly think of the agency as a private business that should be able to turn a profit. But the Postal Service, which, again, is a federal agency, not a private business, hasn't made a profit since 2006, due in part to government restrictions that have hamstrung its ability to do so. After both COVID-19 and the 2020 election have passed, the Postal Service will continue to be what it is now, say our researchers, an essential public service that is vital to our nation and should be funded accordingly. Calls to, quote, defund the police have been reinvigorated in the wake of yet another police shooting of a black man. On Sunday, Jacob Blake was shot seven times in the back by an officer in Kenosha, Wisconsin. As of the time of this recording, Blake is recovering in a hospital, paralyzed from the waist down. Given the heated national conversation around police reform, it's worth defining what defunding the police means. In short, it's the idea of budgeting less money for police and reinvesting these funds in other public safety strategies. According to a new RAND paper, there may be more support for defunding the police than you might think, from a potentially surprising source, law enforcement leaders. Take the following quotations, for instance. Guess which of these originated from law enforcement and which originated from a proponent of defunding the police. Too many social problems like mental health, substance abuse, and other social service needs are often hefted onto the police. Police aren't educated or trained as social workers, but they are being tasked with those objectives. People like to go after bias in policing, but this is too myopic. The problems really call for a system-wide overhaul. We can't arrest our way out of these problems. The job of policing has to change. In fact, all of these statements came from law enforcement officers and chiefs. Many police leaders also agree that some responsibilities, such as responding to homelessness, substance use, and domestic disputes, could be reassigned to other entities, arguing that non-enforcement strategies are often more effective than policing in solving many of these problems. So if law enforcement leaders would support defunding the police, assuming that communities ask the police to address fewer problems— then might there be a window of opportunity for real criminal justice reform? That remains to be seen, but according to RAND experts, if approached in a responsible and evidence-based way, transferring some functions away from police could help make the system work better for everyone. Imagine controlling a machine with your mind. It may sound like science fiction, but the technology that makes this possible, brain-computer interfaces, is being developed today. Brain-computer interfaces, or BCIs, are the subject of a new RAND report, in which the authors offer an initial assessment of this emerging technology, exploring its potential applications and implications. So, how do BCIs work? Well, they allow a human brain and an external device to talk to one another, to exchange signals. And there are different types of BCIs. Non-invasive BCIs are essentially sensors that are applied on or near the head to track and record brain activity. 
These can be placed and removed easily, but the signals between the device and the brain may be muffled and imprecise. Getting a clearer and more accurate signal would likely require getting closer to the brain. For instance, an electronic device could be implanted beneath the skull, directly into the brain, to target specific sets of neurons. You're probably already thinking about the risks that would come along with this technology. For example, BCIs could be hacked and used to cause physical harm or control people's thoughts. They could allow people to be micromanaged at a whole new level during work or school. They could also widen existing social, political, and economic inequities if access to such devices is only available to a select few. But these devices could also offer benefits, new health treatments, for example. By using BCIs, people who have lost the use of their limbs could one day walk again. BCIs could also be used to treat pain, depression, post-traumatic stress, and severe anxiety without pharmaceuticals. Another potential upside, people's memory, attention spans, and cognitive performance could be improved with BCIs. There's a lot we still need to learn about brain-computer interfaces and their risks and benefits. But, says study co-author Annika Bienendijk, there's an opportunity to get ahead of the game. Quote, This is something we should be thinking about now, before BCI technologies become a reality in the everyday world. The speed and scale of the pandemic has disrupted America's social safety net. To learn more about how social service providers have responded, Rand researchers interviewed representatives from a number of Los Angeles-based organizations. Most said that they shifted to provide some services virtually. However, in-person support in the community has continued, when it's essential and with additional safety protocols in place. Providers reported new challenges, too, including clients' lack of technology access, reductions in revenue and the workforce, difficulties in having clients maintain shelter-in-place procedures, and additional stressors on the staff who work at these providers. But these organizations' experiences have also revealed some lessons that could help moving forward. For example, providers could consider giving clients smartphones, they could also help clients become more comfortable with technology-based care. As for supporting staff, they may be able to offer resources that help those working on the front lines of pandemic response. And in the future, focusing on equity issues may be especially important for social services organizations. That's because the pandemic is disproportionately affecting vulnerable populations, such as people experiencing homelessness or those who are involved with the criminal justice system. These individuals may need more support in accessing services, dealing with economic and behavioral health issues, and addressing increased exposure to COVID-19. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered this week, check the show notes at rand.org slash podcast. We'll be off next week for Labor Day, but you'll find us back in your feed in a couple of weeks. See you then.